The word of God from Revelation. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine." When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you uh, would please remain standing for just a while longer, and um, let's just pray. And uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to keep those open or your Bible apps. So this is a doozy. Let's... Let's pray. Lord, um, you know um, the resistance in my heart to even preach such a dense uh, passage. And, um, but we trust you. And you're good and you're merciful. So, Lord, even through this confusing and harsh passage, show us your goodness and nourish our souls. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, for we pray this 
In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Ronnie. And uh, we're continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. And I don't know whose idea it was to preach a sermon series. Uh, so last week, we, you know, we concluded the, the chapters four and five, which you'll remember described the throne room. And, you, and you'll remember that that scene gives res- a response to this question. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break its seals? And at the center of that throne room is the slain lamb of God. And today in chapter six, what we just heard, we're going to study what happens when each of those seals was broken. And I've been warning you, the imagery and the symbols given to us through this sort of Jewish apocalyptic genre, is, it's getting weirder and it's getting more complex. And I really don't want us to get lost in all of that because there really is this profound pastoral aim. You know, I've been talking about hope and how hope is the central aim of this book. But hope for what? And well, he said, well, it's endurance and resistance. But again, we ask, endurance and resistance for what? And answering that question is going to help us really understand what's happening in chapter 6. So each week I've tried to remind us that the original context situates us in the Roman Empire. This is what, at a time when the Roman Empire was incredibly powerful and incredibly stable. To be a citizen of the Roman Empire afforded you incredible benefits and comforts. And the only hang-up was you had to play by their rules. You had to agree to their terms of reality, which included their political and religious system. And simply by declaring that Jesus alone is Lord of Lords and God of Gods was enough to get you the wrong kind of attention from the empire. And so persecution erupted against Christians. And under such intense pressure, there was this temptation by new believers, to simply walk away from Jesus and to live comfortably in the empire. And the disciple John is writing to Christians to strengthen their hope in the resurrection so that they would have endurance and have resistance against the empire. And and this is the key for today. And to be a witness, to be a witness to the reality of the rule of Jesus Now, that word witness in the Greek is martureo, martureo, martyr. What does that sound like? Martyr. So martyrs are those who testify or they witness to the reality and reign of Jesus by their deaths. In other words, their deaths spoke volumes. But to be a witness, you, have to ha- you need this unbreakable hope, a hope that not even the sight of your own blood would make you deny him. And to be sure, for th- the first three centuries of Christian history, they are littered with stories of martyrdom. 
this very book, the book of Revelation, really did strengthen people unto death to be a witness for Christ in all circumstances and temptations. Uh, You know, the church father Athanasius, he writes a sort of biography, a story about St. Anthony. And if you don't know that name, he's one of the desert fathers. He was this monk who essentially kind of started the monastic movement. So Anthony was outside of Alexandria, and he hears that persecution erupted in, uh, in, uh, in the cities. And so when he hears about it, he says, let us go be with them and enter into combat ourselves. His words, combat. So combat here means not to fight, but to die as martyrs with them. Now, these guys weren't suicidal, but they all yearned to be martyred for Christ. And so Anthony goes to all of the confessors, again, his words, those who confess Christ, and he cares about them, and he cares for them while they're in prison, and he shows great enthusiasm in caring for the condemned, the confessors, the witnesses. And so he would care for them while in the jails. He stood before the judges with them, and he would encourage them to stay strong in the face of death, and he would remain with them, and he would walk with them as they're walking to their deaths, and he even cared for their bodies when they were being beheaded. And these kinds of acts, right, these beheadings are supposed to dissuade people from becoming Christians, but Anthony had no fear. Rather, he had this yearning if it would be God's pleasure to join them. Now, they decided not to kill Anthony himself because they realized that would go very badly for them. So instead, they banished them from Alexandria and his entourage. Now, most people thought it was a good idea to go into hiding when they were banished, but Anthony would not follow the crowd. On the contrary, he left only long enough to go wash his clothes, to look presentable. And he goes and he stands in the prominent places, at the very front, clearly visible in front of the prefects, because he wanted to be a witness for Christ. So instead of running to hide, he washed himself, he washed his garments. Why? So that he would be able to go into martyrdom with clean clothes, so that he would be properly adorned when he sees his Savior face to face. Now, the prefects just didn't even know what to do with him, and they said they would absolutely not kill him. And so he would not be awarded outward martyrdom. He would have to live this, what he would later call an inward martyrdom. This is the martyrdom that is in secret, a life that witnesses to the reality, rule, and reign of Christ through sacrifices in the face of the empire. And where did the early church get all of those resources of courage and faith and hope? And the answer is, in part, the book of Revelation, even chapter 6. See, Revelation could be understood as a theology of martyrdom, a resource of preparation for those who want to live lives that testify and witness to the reality of Christ in all circumstances. Now, most will not get outward martyrdom, but we all have the opportunity for inward martyrdom, to be witnesses. For some of you, it just might be a trip to the HR department. 
I digress. As we study these seven seals, that's the lens I want us to have in mind. So don't get lost in the weirdness and the images. Just be strengthened by how they're working on our hearts and on our souls. So that's going to help us. I hope to kind of help us with that. And we're going to do this study by looking at these seven seals in three sections. We're going to look at seals one through four. Then we're going to look at seal five. And then we're going to look at seals six and seven. So let's begin with our first point, seals one through four. And as we do, I want to bring you back into the world where Israel, when they lived in Egypt... And y'all remember the the plagues of God right through Moses? They poured out these judgments, these 10 judgments upon Egypt. Egypt and uh, their gods seemed strong. Egypt was a powerful empire too. To play by their rules meant that life would be much easier for you. And so what God did is he selected these very specific Judgments, these very specific plagues to subvert their views of reality and to confront, to confront their idols. Now, what do I mean by that? Like, do you worship the sun god? Well, I'm going to make the sun go dark. Your god is weak. Oh, you worship the Nile River? I'm going to make the Nile River bleed. Your god will bleed. Turns it into blood. Oh, you worship the fertility god that looks a whole lot like a frog? I'm going to overrun your city with a pestilence of frogs. So the specificity of these plagues told a story. And it told the story that their gods were not real. Now, Israel, right, and Egypt were spared from the main brunt of these plagues. But it still affected them, right? Like when the sun went dark, it went dark for the Israelites as well. Israel also had to learn that these idols were not real. The things that they were tempted to hold out for, what they were tempted for the world to bring them, it does not, it cannot provide. In the same way that those judgments in Egypt worked, we're going to see something similar with these four judgments in the first four seals. So, If you'll remember the very first verse in the book of Revelation, this is chapter 1, verse 1, the disciple John writes, he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. All right? So Jesus is giving John a vision of the things that are about to take place. And what you're about to see, what's actually going to follow from chapter 6 onward, even past our text today, is this. You're going to see a cycle of seven seals, a cycle of seven trumpets, a cycle of seven bowls. And you're not, listen, you're not intended to see these as sort of chronologically. They're, they're, these cycling, around, they're cycling around these judgments that will inevitably come to those who put their hope in anything other than Jesus. How? By confronting they're tempting idols. So the first four seals, in some ways, represents the history of the world. But it's the history of the world in every single generation. Not just theirs, but ours too. And so let me explain. And this is drawing upon some imagery that they would have been familiar with coming kind of from Zechariah chapter 6. But we see these four horses, Okay. The first one is a white horse. Look at verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, 
and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so even this powerful empire like Rome had enemies, and war was always knocking on its door. And so the peace that Rome promised to its citizens was always tenuous. So a citizen could very easily have settled down in a little piece of real estate uh, uh, of Roman land, right, that gets taken over by a rogue state. In their case, it was these Parthians who were known for, like, riding on horses with bows, right? And so war. This first horse is war. The second one is this red horse. Look at verses 3 and 4. I When I opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth and so that the people slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So this horse is red by the blood of people killing each other. And this isn't the bloodshed of an invasion or a foreign army. This is civil unrest. So when a country's resources are dedicated to war, the people feel, a, feel really uncertain about their own land. And so it turns into this dog-eat-dog world. There's no social contract that keeps them from behaving civil with one another. Rome was not so elegant and well-behaved and dignified such that it could prevent a kind of barbaric behavior even among its own citizens. And so we see civil unrest. The third is a black horse. Look at verses five and six. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come. And, I, and look, behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and wine. So what this is speaking to is the scarcity and inflation that skyrockets when the world seems to be on fire, right? Markets that seemed so predictable. Prices that seemed so normal. Everything changes when the world perceives, or when people perceive that the world is on fire, right? The comforts and the predictability of home are so tenuous. Of course, the oil and the wine, they're fine. Now, what does that mean? The lower class is disproportionately affected while the upper class keeps having their finer things. This is not a commentary on socialism versus capitalism. This is a warning to the rich that they could be lulled into a false reality having been insulated from the pain and the unrest of this world. So you have war, then creates civil unrest, and then there's this scarcity, this economic disaster. Now we have the fourth horse. It's a pale horse. Look at verse 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and look, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. Now this fourth horse, horse is described as pale because it's sickly. And its writers were given authority. They needed to be given authority by the scroll holder. 
Remember, they are agents of judgment under the Lamb's rule. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. Now, that amount of death is overwhelming. And believe it or not, that language is actually meant to imply that it's not as bad as it could be because the pale horse does not have full authority, only partial authority. So a fourth of the Roman Empire could be seceded or could be annexed by other empires. In other words, the Roman Empire is making promises it can't keep. But all the people, Christians are tempted to think, no, they're predictable and they, they can be predicted. But no, 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 be warned. And so this pale horse is death. So what, is, like, what does this all mean? So most people will hear metaphors and symbols in this text and they try to ascribe its meaning to something or some event in the, uh, it, it, that will exclusively happen in the future. I don't want you to do that. I want you to see this as a series of visual metaphors that can create a scene that shapes how to think about reality behind reality in every single generation. Now, of course, the language that we're given here in chapter six is suited for the original audience. So it's written to them, but it's written for us. And we see here the most predictable cycles of war, civil civil strife, economic chaos, and death. Y'all have seen that before, right? You've seen that before. Those four horses represent the cycle that you see in every generation. Every generation has seen it, but we forget. And why do we forget? Because we're comfortable. The original audience felt like they were comfortably in a very stable Roman Empire. They saw zero horses. The empire made people safe and rich. And when people are comfortable they're most easily seduced away from their loyalty to Jesus. And listen, like, I pastorally, I see this all the time. Like, people will come to church when they're in crisis, but when the problem resolves and they're comfortable, they leave. And the Roman Empire was like that. The empire promised peace, and people believed it. But for those who put their hope in Rome, their hope would be shattered when it falls. Just like the plagues of Egypt, these four horses and judgments are meant to deconstruct the idols of this world. And here's the warning. People who cast their lot with the empire will be crushed with it. So don't do it. Don't take the bait. It is a bait and switch, modern Denverites. Jesus is showing John and us the reality of the world, the things that will happen. And this weird complex of images is supposed to give you a peek into these ugly spiritual realities. It looks beautiful out there, but there's this ugly spiritual reality behind it. Of what seems stable and beautiful, it's not what it seems. Now listen, I know that... um, Everything kind of looks fine. But the peace and the comfort that seduces us is tenuous. And Jesus is calling us to witness 
to testify to him with our lives and our loyalties. You'll see that? Now, naturally, having heard this frightening description and all of these calamities, the saints are asking this question, well, what's going to happen to me? And this gets us to the fifth seal. This is our second point. So there is a kind of misery in this life that keeps us longing and yearning for something more. Like our very best moments, even our best ones, they seem to pass away fairly quickly. And it leaves us in this shadow of homesickness. Just, I know things are fine, but we're longing for something more. And that, that misery, I actually believe is a grace. It is a grace to be homesick for something more, even when you're sitting in your home. And why is that? It's because this world is not our home. All the greatest artisans in time and our favorite musicians, they all kind of reflect this in their art, right? If you can think of like Degas, a masterful piece, Waiting. Or even modern artists like Bono, U2, in their song 40, he sings, how long? How long to sing this song? He, of course, is riffing on, right, Psalm 13 and Psalm 40. How long, O Lord, how long must I wait? And those are the precise words that are on the mouth of the martyrs, these witnesses. Look at verse 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So he's drawing on this rich Old Testament and even rabbinic teachings and imagery. But the altar is the place, you know, symbolically where God's people are kept. In the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, he asks, he says, Who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? And this seal, seal five, gives a resounding answer. Nothing can separate you from the love and the blood of the lamb. And then these witnesses are given this white robe right, which represents the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to them. But then something very strange happens. The martyrs ask, well, how long before you avenge our deaths? And then we're told in verse 11 that he says to them, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Like, that's the plan. Like, not yet. A few more still have to die. Like, what's that about? So, Revelation, at its heart, is showing the victory of Jesus over his enemies. But the triumph of the Lamb over his enemies comes through these witnesses. To be a witness, to be a martyr, to testify, 
is often inward martyrdom, but for some, and even in this century, on this day, to some, God has given the great honor and privilege of outward martyrdom. Like, I know what I'm saying is almost impossible for us to accept. I'm barely trying to convince myself to peel my greedy fingers from my weakened mountain trips. I barely have that going. So dying for God is like a whole different level. And this is the great act of faith. It's like our comfort has made us soft. We have so much to learn from like our brothers in China. Y'all know? Listen, every week I am here trying to make Jesus so beautiful and so compelling so that death would be unlocked and seen as a doorway to something better. I am here every week trying to make the Apostle Paul's words intelligible to our soul that to live is Christ and to, to, to die is really gain. That your ease with death is a powerful witness to the resurrection of Christ. To make Christ look great in your dying, you don't have to accomplish some big achievement or some heroic sacrifice. It's just laying your life into the arms of the one who makes all of your losses gain. If you look at Christianity and you say to yourself, Jesus is useful to me, then you'll never understand this text. But if you look at Jesus and say, he is beautiful, I have to have him. I will do anything to have him. He is my treasure. My life is of no value compared to my life in Christ. If you can say that even just a little bit, then you'll start to make a little bit of sense of this fifth seal. For Jesus, family, history and death and calamity is very easy to manage. And for the early church, for the early church, death is not the worst things. There are worse things indeed. And so dying becomes this acceptable option for us because Christ has us and he controls our destinies. And so our job is not to control death, rather to give ourselves to Jesus and his purposes for our life. Do you believe that? Let's move to our final two seals. This is our third point. So the first four seals describes the reality behind reality. Those things are versions of them that will happen in every generation, ours as well. Have you seen the stock markets, anyone? The fifth seal lets us peek into how our witness to Christ is honored and protected. And now, when the sixth seal is broken, the scene 
changes drastically. It's ushering the listener into this moment at the end of time. And this is the peak into the final chapter of human history. Now, up until this point in the vision, calamity and destruction rules. Believers who worship the lamb are persecuted, and many have even died for their obedience. Evil rulers seem to be in charge. And to even say that the Lord is reigning, it contradicted everything that believers could see with their eyes. I mean, Christians would say that the Lamb of God is ruling, that he was king, but very few people recognize that kingdom. But all of that changes now with the sixth seal. Now, the Lamb of God, he becomes a lion. And the kings of the world are exposed as imposters. Look at verse 12 and 13. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So on this day, Jesus shows that he's not only the true king of mankind, but in fact, he's the king over all of creation, even the sun and the moon, which have marked the time of human history. Even those luminaries are in submission to its king and creator. Even the sun and the moon will announce his return. Now, I know that kind of sounds crazy, and you're like, that's revelation speak. But Jesus himself said the exact same things. This is not just weird imagery in the book of Revelation. These are red letters in your Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29, verse 29 and 30, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, says Jesus. And what's the response? Look at verses 15 through 17. Well, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who, who can stand? Now, this sixth seal represents the final day of human history to a point in history that has not yet occurred. It reaches both into the future of the original audience, but it reaches into our future as well. And nevertheless, even though it is a future, what this imagery, if you'll remember, like those, remember the seven letters in chapters two and three that we studied? We talked about how all seven of those cities experienced this massive earthquake in 60 AD. So this imagery of an earthquake where like mountains are turned into dust and falling rocks, that metaphor would have graphically resonated with them. They would have understood God's rule because they've seen a bit of that. They've seen the earth underneath them shake. This is a kind of imagery that aims to loosen their grip on their real estate. God's kingdom will supplant Caesar's kingdom. And then, so there's this weird juxtaposition, right? In the fifth seal, you have the saints praying to God. 
And in the sixth field, those in power are praying to the rocks to fall on them. And the slain lamb is depicted as having wrath. And I know, I know all of this imagery is so intense, but there's just one thing at least you must walk away with, that though Jesus is meek and kind and loving, and that is all true, he's also real and he's slain and he will not be trifled with on the final day. We have traditionally called this in Christian formation, we call this the fear of God. Do you have the fear of God? Or do you live in this life as if he does not exist? Or do you live as if he just doesn't even care about your choices? And then the judgment of the sixth seal gives way to the peace of the seventh seal. Now, you'll notice between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's this interlude that talks about these two witnesses in chapter seven. That's next week's sermon. For now, look at verse, chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And then shortly after this, what we're going to see is these uh, metaphors repeat themselves in the form of seven trumpets and seven bowls, and they're all just representing a different focus of reality. But what I want you to see in verse 1 of chapter 8 is that there's something about those words, silence in heaven. You know, sometimes I have these like bouts of anxiety. Part of the reason is uh, my body's broken. A little bit. Part of the reason is that there's no corner in my life where I have a lot of peace and silence. I have these four amazing teenagers that are moving into adulthood, requires a lot of uh, prayer and attention. I uh, serve this amazing congregation, uh, but there are a lot of burdens to be shared. Uh, my body betrays me sometimes. And I feel all of this like deep in my soul and deep in my body. And when I drive alone in my car, I usually drive in silence. I'm like that weird guy, just silence. And it's hard to explain, but even that silence feels loud to me. Because my soul craves this peace and silence. And I, what I realize, what I really want can only come from the Lord. The silence that my soul needs will come when I'm speechless while bowing in the presence of God as he becomes the center of my reality. And that wholeness, fam, hang on. It is coming. It will come. Be strengthened. Let me quickly conclude. Thank you. This has been so dense. So the first four seals offers us this brief history of time, not only for the original generation, but for every generation. The fifth seal shows that we are kept and loved, even as we're called to give up everything and testify, witness to God. And then the final two seals, the sixth and seventh, point to a future that is ahead of everyone. And this complex of 
symbols and metaphors is intended to help us make sense of our present lives and to strengthen our souls. Like we know that Jesus is king, like he is the lamb, he is ruling. But like when we look around the world, when we look around our own lives, when we look around our own hearts, it doesn't appear like Jesus is ruling. Like if Jesus is ruling, why is there so much pain and calamity and injustice and sin? And I'm not even talking about out there. And this vision shows us the spiritual realities that are in correlation with physical realities that we see with our eyes but can't see. (laughs) And the way this works is like, see, in Revelation, you see calamities. Well, in this world, you see calamities. But then in this vision, we also see that Jesus is in control. He is the holder of the scroll. He's the one breaking the seals. He's the one on the brink of making all things right. So guess what that means for us? That Jesus is in control and he's on the brink of making all things right. And if this is true, it means that we can follow him. We can witness to him, testify to him, be martyred even for him. Listen, I don't know about you, I, I don't even like preaching the text. When I look at the violence in this text and the judgment, it just, it makes me so extremely uneasy. But when you do, do this. When you feel the heaviness of all those violent metaphors, you're supposed to turn it into a deep thankfulness for the Lamb. How? Well, remember, we are worshiping the lamb, but the lamb who was slain. And all of the violence that is depicted in this text was ultimately perpetrated against Christ in his body. Like the wrath of God was a wrath put on Jesus. Like this is at the very center of everything we believe, that he bore God's wrath on our behalf. And now the only thing that governs our relationship with God is mercy. It is mercy to you and it is mercy to me and it is mercy to your children. God has powerful and holy and infinite mercy for his children. All of our pleasures, all of our pains, all of it is mercy. And dwelling on that is meant to strengthen you with this unbreakable hope, with new endurance and resistance, so that you would be ready to witness to the Lamb who loves you. Amen. Amen.